Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley, and I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host. Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, we're going to be talking about a, a tough subject, and that's uh, recovery from mass violence and terrorism. And uh, we've got a guest who has not only helped people, but has had the same experience himself. So would you like to introduce him, Heidi? Sure, Mom. Our guest today is Michael Morissette. And like you said, we're going to be talking about mental health for survivors. Michael is the father of Christina Kaylee Morissette, who died in the borderline bar and grill shooting in Thousand Oaks, California. She was only 20 years old. Michael began volunteering to that impacted community and currently works full-time for a nonprofit providing mental health support for other survivors of mass traumas. I have just had the opportunity to start to get to know Michael because he and I are founding members for Tuesday's Children's Survivors Tragedy Outreach Program a coalition impacted by acts of terrorism, mass violence, and military conflict. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Michael, thank you so, uh, for coming on. I'm so sorry about the murder of your daughter, Kaylee. Um, really an incredibly tragic. You know, I've lost a, a Heidi lost her brother and I lost my son at 17. So, and he was living at home and I think your daughter was living at home too, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an incredibly brutal thing and, and a murder connected with that also, uh, incredibly brutal. You've had these high profile loss. Uh, what's different about that? Yeah, um, wow. It, it was um, right away from the first moment that we found out it was um, surreal because it was on TV and it was one of those, you know, breaking news. It was on every channel and, you know, um, we couldn't even get to the, the scene of the shooting because there was so much police presence. Um, we were diverted by the time we went out to the area, um, we were diverted to um, what they called a uh, reunification center. It was a teen center nearby. Um, first thing we did was check the hospitals because all we knew was she wasn't answering her phone. It, Christina was the, um, she was the hostess that night at the door. She worked at the borderline bar and grill. Um, so, you know, we didn't know. Um, what the situation was, all we knew was there were, there was a shooting, people died and Christina wasn't answering her phone. Um, the first thing that alerted us was her friend who lives across the street came pounding on her door at one in the morning and um, she had seen the news and Christina, like I said, was not answering her phone. Um, and then by the time we got to the unification, the reunification center, um, you know, the media was there, FBI was there, all, all the law enforcement agencies were there uh, because it was right down the street from the incident. And um, we knew that, you know, it was, 
it was just so surreal. That's that's all I can say at the beginning. Um, and we knew it was different because this kind of thing had never happened in Thousand Oaks. <laughs> Thousand right. Oaks was not, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't mean to be, uh, I don't mean to be um, critical, but Thousand Oaks wasn't ready for something like that. I mean, who is, right? Mm -hmm. um, but nobody was, nobody was prepared for um, what they were about to go through. Law enforcement, the responders, I mean, they've responded some, to some horrific things just like anyone else, but something on a scale like this where the FBI comes in and takes over, it's, wow. it was, you know, um, it just, <laughs> I don't know how to explain how we felt, but uh, one thing I can say is that um, I didn't realize that it was, you know, I, I knew the way it happened, but the word murder never entered my mind until I saw the death certificate and that's what it said. Um, on the death certificate. And then I realized that my daughter was killed by a suicidal mass murderer. Right. <laughs> and it's not funny, yeah. but um, I had not thought of it that way. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the level um, that this reached in the news and the media, and, and um, I was listening to one of your other, um, one of your other guests mentioned the celebrity of being um, in the news like that, um, I celebrity, I don't know if I like that word, but there was attention mm -hmm. and, um, our community immediately came around us and wanted to know where we were in, you know, from day one, um, obviously the families were around us and then um, our own families. And then we got to know the other borderline mm. families that lost members. And then we were getting to know the community of survivors. And, and um, it's a large community of, of patrons and people that are loyal to that, uh, that venue that's been there for decades. Um, now, talk about that. What, what does that mean? A, a community of people helping? Yeah, well, See, the, the, bar, the Borderline Bar and Grill is a country venue for line dancing. Oh. Um, they've done um, a lot of musical um, guests, a lot of um, like concerts in the Bar and Grill for years and years and years. And it had been a place for people in Thousand Oaks or in East Ventura County. Um, and people came from L.A. County because there aren't that many country western venues where you can line dance and they had dancing um gosh i don't know if it was every night of the week but um there were classes on weeknights and then the weekends you know were open and um so, but so they really it was a whole community that felt yeah, like they yeah so it was a large community of people that have been patronizing the bar and grill for decades some of them and you know we found out later that many people had had their wedding receptions there or actually been married there or um you know met their spouses there and there are a lot of stories like that um so it's something that goes back into the community over the years um but like i said there's immediately there's there was the family 
our own family and friends, our own church family or community family, our friends, um, then the 12 families of the 12 um, lost. And then that, that there were 248 survivors um, that were in the room that night who gathered around us. Um, we tried to, there were a lot of public events and um, fundraisers and places where we could mingle with the survivors. And this was pre-pandemic. So um, there were a lot of opportunities to be around the people and they, they would come ask us how we were, how the family members were. They wanted to know how we were doing. Right. And I realized that that was um, a way they could gauge um, maybe an expectation of how they were going to do. You know, if they could see we were doing well, maybe they felt better about doing well themselves or, or they would be hesitant about doing well if, if we weren't doing so well. So I, I'm not sure everybody, I'm sure, had a different take on it. Did that put, did you feel like it? Has it put responsibility on you? At first, it was just what was happening. You know, it wasn't, at first, there wasn't a lot of thinking and mental decisions being made. It was just, you know, we had our victim advocates. We had a sheriff advocate because it was high profile. Um, and they would take us to places. Now you need to come here. You need to go fill out paperwork. You need to come here and um, there's a uh, informational forum and we need to go meet people and talk to them. And, um, and that's the informational forum in Thousand Oaks is when I met Lonnie and Sandy Phillips, who kind of <laughs> opened my eyes to the fact that this has happened before, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're just working and you're hearing things like this in the news and none of them are local and you don't know anybody who's ever been affected um, everything just seems like another news story somewhere far away, um, affecting people you don't know. And then all of a sudden it, it, it lands in your backyard or in, in your house even. And, um, and all of a sudden it becomes very real. And then to meet somebody from another incident, um, who came to just comfort us, um, was at first it was unbelievable i couldn't understand why they would do it um and then later i found out that that's just what they do they go around to incidents one of the things that we know from the research in grief loss and recovery is that peer support is really one of the most important things information and peer support yeah you know i guess maybe it's kind of the if you made it i can or i i remember feeling like from the first day, I felt like I was just holding my breath all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's traumatic. What did you find uh, was helpful to you? This, this, the most helpful in those early days for people who are suffering trauma? Um, well, I know that this is different for everybody. Um, even my wife and I, you know, we're grieving the loss of the same child from the same household, and we're grieving differently. She doesn't receive um, encouragement the way I do in certain things. At first, I was encouraged by people coming to us because I, I started to feel right away um, when they were trying to comfort me, they would share whatever their uh, 
they would share what was in common. Um, so usually people would share what, what their worst experience was. Um, and, and that's when you would start hearing stories from people that you'd known, but you didn't know that they had, you know, suffered a loss previously because they didn't talk about it. Um, but they were willing to share it with you. And then, and then people that you barely know are sharing things. And then people that you don't even know at all, you've never met before and maybe never will again, are willing to share because they want to connect at that level too. Um, it's, it's about empathizing. And so I felt, I felt like they were coming to me to console me, but then sometimes I would wind up consoling them. Right away, there was just this some kind of mutual dynamic, this, this, you know, back and forth thing going on. And mm -hmm. I, I wanted to know more about that. And so you volunteered. Yeah. What happened was, um, you know, agencies and nonprofits and dot govs and everybody comes around you and supports you. And one of the things that we had was, um, uh, mental health support, um, from given our, they started some uh, peer support groups. My wife and I started going to those as soon as they formed, which was probably about six months after the shooting. It didn't happen mm -hmm. right away because I don't think any of us were ready. And that wound up being about six months later. Did you do some individual too? Are you saying before that or how did that go? What my wife and I did was people from my church came around me and and told me that there was this thing called Grief Share, and it's a church-based, it's only 13 weeks, but it's a Christian-based process of going through grief, and it's with peers, and it's, it's, it's all um, layperson um, facilitated, so people that have been trained to present the program, but weren't counselors or therapists, and it was very soon, it was very early, and they said, you know, most of the time people wait, and I said, well, this only happens once in a while. So I want to do it before it's gone. It's only a 13-week program. And the next one might not be till next year. I think you're making a point right now. They said most people wait. And you said, do you want to start early? I think that's an important point. People are ready at different times. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and some people are ready very early. And some people are not. Yeah. So. And, and I think for me, I use that. I, I leaned into it as part of my coping mechanism. My coping wasn't really to go back to work right away, although I only took one month off. I should have taken a couple. My wife did. Um, so my coping mechanism was was to lean into this, like, what is this? And what? how do people deal with this? And what what are the processes that are available? So more an active style. Yeah, I really wanted to pursue it. Um, because I didn't know enough about it and I knew it was going to affect me and it was affecting everyone around me. Would she have gone without you? Do you think or would she have waited? No, she wouldn't have gone without me, but because I wanted to go, she was willing to go with me. Um, and we went through the whole 13 weeks and that gave me, um, that gave me a, like a foundation of, of realizing um, that this is the way life is. This is what happens. A lot of bad stuff happens. Um, you know, and, and out there in the world, people don't talk about the bad stuff that happens. They don't, they don't either, either they don't want to talk about it because it hurts or 
maybe they're afraid they're tired of talking about it and hurting other people um you know it, it gets to the point where where you realize that people don't want to hear it because it it's hard for them some people are good grief support too and some mm-hmm. people aren't particularly good grief mm-hmm. support that's fine you know it's just the way it is i mean they're yeah. not people talk about aces the adverse childhood experiences everybody has a different um they come to the table with different experiences everybody experienced whatever happened differently even mm-hmm. my wife and i like i said have a different take on you know how it how it affected us and and everybody's gonna gonna grieve or process differently um and then you know we all take a different path so we learn and pick up different things as we go too i wanted to ask you because i know there are people who've had a trauma what would you suggest to people whether you need it or not at any given moment that, that we should know what's out there. We should know what resources are available. Even if we think we're not gonna use them, that we should know what's available and how to get to it. Um, and, and it would be best to investigate um, if, if somebody doesn't think they need um, support, that they should at least look into what does that mean? What am I, what am I saying I don't need? Because okay. a lot of people, just want to push through this alone on their own they've done that all their lives and um they don't need someone else to show them you know tell them how to feel um but it means so much more than that and i just feel like everybody should at least know what what they're turning down if they're turning down support and help um and then to investigate it to to be able to say that I might be ready for that later, um, and when the time comes to to reach out and to to take that support, and just don't turn your back on it. Some people will get through it by themselves, mm-hmm. um, but I'm I'm pretty sure that that's a small, and mm-hmm. and you know what? When they look back over many many years, they'll probably reflect back and say, you know what? Maybe I should have listened. Maybe I should have, you know, sought out, and maybe I should have um, looked into supporting others as a way to grow myself. What are you doing? Is there some site that people can go to to get information? Well, I wound up volunteering with Give an Hour because they were the ones who came on the scene and gave us support. Give an Hour. They've got this thing that it's called the campaign to change direction. And they have these little cards. It's because they had this campaign to change direction. It's about recognizing recognizing the five signs of emotional um, suffering. Ooh, give us those five signs. The five signs of emotional suffering, not feeling like yourself. Are you withdrawn? Are you agitated? Um, are, are you caring for yourself? And are you feeling hopeless? So basically, if if we see in ourselves or we see in someone else that since this incident or because of this incident, there's been a change in someone um, that we need to look into that. And the, the healthy habits on the other side are to take care of yourself, to check in, to engage, to relax, and to know the five signs, to know what to look for in not just others but in yourself 
to to be able to say down the road, you know what, I'm not doing so well. I thought I was, but I look in the mirror and I haven't smiled in years, you know, so maybe I should talk to somebody about that. After our incident, I had heard maybe six months later, I had heard about some suicides in some of the other um, communities after some of the school shootings. And so, so a, a year or two down the road that people had taken their lives. Um, and so that made me realize that, that this isn't something that just goes away after it happens mm -hmm. and you can just, you know, kind of time heals all wounds. It's not true. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard about this campaign to change direction, I, I asked if I could go hand these out at country music festivals and if I could just be out there to talk to people. So, so they let me um, run some booths at some country music festivals and I wound up getting involved in some other um, um, uh, youth mental health events in the community. And then when it, it there came time um, after the fires there was some funding to do some support for the fire victims in our area. So they hired me part-time to do outreach for that. I received uh, an offer to work full-time um, with the Route 91 survivors in Southern California. Uh, it turns out there are 14,000 people in Southern California that were at the Route 91 shooting. <laughs> and, and you know that that just didn't go away. They've got some things to talk about. Given Hour is a national nonprofit. Um, you can find it on the web at giveanhour.org. And um, I'm in California, so we work locally um, with, with um, communities that are um, impacted by adverse events. Michael, you're great. It's so great to interview you and have you talk about what you're doing. It's, it's really inspiring for to do this. And I know in Kaylee's memory and... Uh, it breaks my heart while you're doing it, but <laughs> but thank you so much for everything you've done, and I really appreciate it. And I know you're helping a lot of people. And good luck to you on your own journey too. Thank you. Yeah, I wish we had more time to talk, but I'll I'll talk to you again. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for uh, the opportunity. Thank you, and I want to thank everybody for joining us on this show today. And always, Hadi and I want to remind you that if you've lost hope. Please lean on ours until you find your own, and God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.